0: So this morning, today, we are starting into a new journey together, a new series, and the series is entitled Ancient Wisdom. And we are going to be taking the next 12 weeks to walk through what we call the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, these are books that were written and recorded of Israel and God's people's history, of what they walked through and their, their experiences and how God used people to speak to them about very important things that are going on in their lives. And so this morning as we, we, we step into this, I want to kind of start with kind of uh, some um, this important kind of keys to know kind of what this journey is going to look like. Uh, one of the reasons for, there's a lot of good reasons, but one of the reasons that we're going to walk through this journey is that I, I've wanted to, to take some time in the Old Testament for a while, and, and especially in the prophets, and about six months ago, I, I started reading through the minor prophets on my own, just devotionally. And uh, one of the things I think that we have a tendency to do is, I know I've experienced this, but I've seen it in the lives of other people. Uh, when you come to know Jesus, and you're a part of a church, and not all, always, but sometimes we get in this pattern, we, get, we become afraid of the Old Testament. Because we read through the Old Testament, it's like, man, there's some strange stuff happening in the Old Testament. It's really weird. And, and, and as you read through it, we try to get a grasp on who God is. And sometimes the only way we can figure that out is we have to f- quick flip to the New Testament, get to the Gospels, and, and find out who Jesus is. Now I feel more safe and secure about who God is because sometimes in the Old Testament you read through passages and you're like, this is kind of the, 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 the idea that we have of God. He's just this grumpy old man that just loves to squish and crush people. Like he's mad all the time and just looking for someone to pour out his wrath on. Anybody know what I'm talking about, and that's in fact, if you in our culture today. Uh, So many times when the Bible's referenced outside the church as as a way to justify that God is wrong or that the church doesn't care, it's usually some obscure Old Testament passage that is taken out of context to demonstrate that God really is ticked off at people and doesn't love anyone. That's kind of the way it works. And so I think we have a tendency to be afraid of the Old Testament, but what you and I will discover, especially as we go through the minor prophets, it's amazing, is that the opposite is true of the nature of God. God's wrath does uh, require his justice does require that wrath be poured out and judgment be poured out on sin But God's desire is not to pour out his wrath on people God's desire is to reconcile and redeem and love people And that is laced throughout the minor prophets and throughout the old testament And so as we journey through this together what you're going to discover Is that the, the old grumpy dude that you thought God was in the old testament is something that you've come up with on your own It's not true. It's not what the scriptures have for us So this morning we're going to look at the book of Hosea and what we're going to do each week so you know you can prepare for this. um, There's a, a thing called the Bible Project that's come out in the last year or two that is a great resource of kind of giving the overview of a number of books of the Bible and some different insights in a very creative way. And they have something on each of the books of the Minor Prophets and because... Trying to take on a whole book in one, you know, 45-minute period is really difficult. Each week, what we're going to do is watch a video, that anywhere from, from five to about a nine-minute video, that gives us an overview of each of the books that we're looking at in a way that kind of makes it more accessible and doesn't require us to, to go through the entire thing that fast. So what you're going to see up on the screen, you're going to hear someone's voice, and then you're gonna hear, it's going to be illustrated on what they're talking about, about what the book of Hosea is about. So as you look at the screen, don't stress out like, oh, I really would like to write that down. That looks really cool. And then the video goes away. Every week we do this, a copy of what you're going to see at the end of the video will be out at the info kiosk for you to grab. Uh, An easier way to do it is you can go online and you actually can go to BibleProject.com and you can watch all the videos and you can actually download these kind of pictures or maps that they call of of each of the books to kind of have for your own. So so this is the book of Hosea we're going to start with. So take a look at this video to give us the overview of what's going on in Hosea.
1: The book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the story from 1 Kings. Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos, and in the year 722, the big bad Assyrian empire swooped in and decimated Israel. Again, see the story in Second Kings. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. The book is a collection of some 25 years of his preaching and writing. It's almost all poetry. And this whole collection has been designed to have three main sections. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it works. The opening part tells the story of Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer who commits adultery. Now, it's not totally clear whether Gomer slept around with other men before or only after they got married. But they did have three children together and things fell apart. The important point is that God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he is to go find her, to pay off her debts to her lovers, and to commit his love and faithfulness to her once again. And then God says that all of this, the broken and repaired marriage, the children, it's all a prophetic symbol telling the story of God's relationship to Israel. So God has been like a faithful husband to Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them to Mount Sinai where he entered into a covenant with them. He asked them to be faithful faithful to him alone. But then he brought Israel into the promised land, and they took all the abundance that he gave them, and they dedicated it to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so God has a legitimate reason. He could end the covenant and divorce Israel, and he thinks about doing so, but instead. He says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew his covenant with them. And he says why? It's purely because of his own love, compassion, and faithfulness. Hosea then spells out what all this means. He says the consequences for Israel's rebellion will be imminent defeat by other nations and exile. But there's hope for future restoration. One day Israel will once again repent and come back to worship their God. And Hosea says he will place over them a new messianic king from the line of David who will bring God's blessing. And so this opening section introduces all the main ideas of the book. Israel has rebelled, and God's going to bring severe consequences, but God's own covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. And so in the remaining sections of the book, Hosea's poetry explores these themes in more depth. So there are two collections of his accusations and warnings for Israel, and then each of these is concluded by a very hopeful poem about God's mercy and hope for the future. So chapters 4 through 10, Hosea explores the causes and effects of Israel's unfaithfulness. He says numerous times that Israel lacks all knowledge or understanding of God. The Hebrew word to know, which is yada, it's more than just intellectual activity. It describes personal relational knowledge. It's the difference between just knowing about someone and then actually knowing that someone. And God wants Israel to know him like that in a relationship. He wants them to experience his love for them and become the kind of knowledge that transforms their hearts and lives so that they love him in return. And so this is why Hosea is constantly exposing the hypocrisy of Israel's worship. He constantly shows how they're breaking the Ten Commandments, how they're allowing grave injustice in their communities, and then they go to their sacred temples and they offer sacrifices to God like everything is just fine. But it's not fine. And not only because of their hypocrisy, but because they're worshiping all of these other gods too. He he mentions many times their altars to Baal at the cities of Bethel and Gilgal. And not only have they given their allegiance to other gods, Hosea repeatedly accuses Israel for trusting in their political alliances with Egypt and Assyria. So instead of trusting God to protect them, they want to become like these nations and rely solely on military power. And God says it's all going to come crashing down on their heads because in not too long, Assyria will turn on them and come to ravage their lands. In this other section of warning, Hosea gives an ancient Israelite history lesson to show how this family has been unfaithful from the beginning. So he alludes to the patriarch Jacob's lying and treachery, remember Genesis 27 and 28. He alludes to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, remember the book of Numbers. He alludes to their appointment of the corrupt king Saul who led the people into sin and disaster, remember the stories in 1 Samuel. This is all Hosea's way of saying some things in this family family never change. So what hope does Hosea have? Well, we know from chapter 3 that God's going to do something to save and restore his people. And that's what these two concluding chapters explore. Chapter 11 is beautiful. The poem depicts God as a loving father who raised his son Israel and then shared everything with him. But the son grew up and rebelled and turned on the father, taking advantage of his generosity. And so in this poem, God is emotionally torn apart. One moment he's angry and naturally he says he's going to bring severe consequences. But the next moment he's heartbroken. And then he says that he's moved by his mercy and compassion and he's going to forgive the son that he loves. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart churns inside of me. All my compassion is aroused. And so while God did allow Israel to be conquered by Assyria, face the consequences, that's not God's final word. There's still hope. And that's what the last chapter is about. Hosea calls Israel to repent and turn back to their God, but he knows that it won't last because it never has before. And God says that one day he will heal their waywardness and love them freely. God goes on to describe this new healed Israel as a lush tree that will grow deep roots and broad branches and offer shade and fruit to all of the nations. It's an image of God's promise to Abraham, how Israel was to become a blessing to the nations. And God's saying if that's ever going to happen, it's going to require an act of God's grace and healing power to rep- Repair the deep brokenness and sinful selfishness of the human heart so that God's people can receive his love and love him in return. This is what God promises to do. Now, after this poem concludes, we find the very last words of the book. They're like an appended note. They're likely from the author who collected Hosea's poetry and now wants to speak to you, the reader, for a second. And he says, who is wise and discerning to understand all of this? In other words, Hosea's poems. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them. So the author wants you to know that Hosea's ancient poetry to northern Israel is not locked in the past. It reveals deep truths about God's character and purposes and human nature. And while God should and does bring his justice on human evil, his ultimate purpose, his heart, is to heal and to save his people. And that's what the book of Hosea is all about.
0: Yeah. You got it? That's good enough. Close your Bibles and let's go home, right? I mean, that's a lot there. There's a lot there. And I want to, we're going to use those videos so we kind of get the the bigger, broader picture of what's going on in each of the books. And so today we're going to focus in, obviously, on Hosea. And the focus of today is God's scandalous love. And that is the best way to describe God's love for us. And this is why it kind of flies in the face of what we think about God, particularly in the Old Testament, Uh, Because the imagery that's in this book is so powerful that God literally comes to his prophet and says, Listen, I want you to go join yourself to an, an adulterer to someone who's going to violate their covenant with you. And you know this going in, that you're making a commitment to somebody who is not going to fulfill their vow to you. That's pretty crazy. And God's using this as this illustration that that's the way he treats his people. He knows, and it's mentioned a couple times in in the video, he knows that we're gonna be unfaithful. He knows that we're gonna fail. He knows that we're not gonna keep up our vows to him, but he continues to come after us. And even though we're unfaithful, he continues to be faithful to us. And so we're gonna hit two passages in the book. Of Hosea. The first one, if you have your Bibles, you can find your way to Hosea chapter 4. And we're going to look at just the first two verses because I want to start with kind of the the negative side, which is uh, what's described here is what looks like unfaithfulness in our life. What was going on in in Israel and the people and what happens as well in our lives that are kind of signs of unfaithfulness that aren't necessarily obvious things, but they're things that become a part of who we are. Before we know it, we realize we're actually in this season where we've disconnected from God. We're much like Israel. And so there's four things I want to highlight, but let me start by reading verse 1. In verse 2 of Hosea chapter 4, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of god in the land there is swearing lying murder stealing and committing adultery they break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed so what's being described is what's the current context of god's people and so i want to just take a few moments just to break those the four things down that are mentioned there the first one is this the first in fact maybe you can take this as maybe a self assessment this morning of i look at my life and ask the question is this true of me Because if it is, maybe I'm finding myself in a season of unfaithfulness, even though I thought I was committed. The first one is this in verse 1. It's the absence of love. So the writer says there is no faithfulness or steadfast love. Not just love, but steadfast love. Steadfast love is a love that doesn't end. It's a love that is consistent. The love doesn't, doesn't come in and out. It's not on or off. It's always consistent. And so what, what is being said of God's people, which is so many times true of us, is that we go through seasons in our life where our love is not steadfast, which means there are moments in our following of Jesus that we feel deep passion and a deep connection to God, and then there's other moments where we feel totally disconnected from God, almost feel like we're going the opposite direction. It's kind of like this on-again, off-again thing that we live in. And all of us, if you follow for G- Jesus for any amount of time in your life, you've experienced those kinds of seasons. That's what's being described here. It's almost like a, a picture of this. Is You remember that, that one or two, I know in, on my high school, like five couples, that they were always the on-again, off-again couple. You remember that couple? They're like, they're like dating, and they're together, and everything's great, and then the next week one of them gets mad, and they break up, and they broke up for a week or two, and then they're back together, and you really never know where they stand with each other. And so you're just kind of standing back watching this train wreck unfold before you because they, they can't figure out how to be consistently connected to each other. And I think so many times that is true of our relationship with God. It's, it's not God's challenge. It's not God's problem. His love is always steadfast. It never changes. His commitment to us never changes. But we go through these hot and these cold seasons. And what's being said here is if, that, if that's the normal pattern of our life, uh, in, in that we, we have these seasons where we're like, all right, I'm all in to follow Jesus, and then like, something happens, and then I'm off. What's being t- told to us here is that then what we have overall in our life— is unfaithfulness. We're we're kind of like Gomer. We're kind of like that that adulterer that we check in, but we check out with God instead of being consistent. Then the second thing is also in verse 1, a sign of unfaithfulness, what it looks like is the absence of relationship. It says, and no knowledge of God is, is in the land. There's no, there's no knowledge, which means, obviously it's explained in the video, but there's no, it's not like no like knowledge as though nobody knows information about God. It's no knowledge that there's no acknowledgement of who God is in my life. There's not the personal connection of relationship that God desires with his people. Those things become absent in, in the lives of people. And so for us, I think sometimes the way that, that how that kind of takes a form in our life is that we can actually be on the outside what we consider a good Christian and on the inside have absolutely no connection with God. Because what happens is that we become proficient at doing things and we become proficient at going to church or having devotions or reading the Bible or praying and doing all the things that we would call our disciplines of our faith, yet we know deep down inside we're only doing these things out of obligation. There's no personal connection with God because our our understanding or our relationship with god has been based on something that is not personal it's become based on information and we sometimes think think the more i know about god the more i will know god and that's not true to some extent, there is some truth to it. But the way you and I know somebody is not by studying them as a subject. It's by doing what? Spending time with them. I think I've said this before, but if I, on my first, our first date, when Kim and I went out for the first time, if we went out and said, listen, I really want to get to know you, so I'm going to study you as a subject. And so I said, can you please give me the book on Kim so I can go home and I can study it, I can make some you know, flashcards for me to memorize important facts about you so next time when we're together, I'll know more about you. I don't think I would have gotten past the first date with Kim. She would have looked at me strange. But sometimes that's the way we engage God. It's like we take him as a subject, and we want to learn about him when God says, no, 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 no. I don't want to be known about. I want to be known. And that's what he's saying to his people. That's what he says to us. But we love religion, and we love the, the do's and the don'ts because we feel self-justified in that. But God doesn't look for self-justification. He looks for relationship, and that's what he's doing here, and that's what his desire is for you and I. Sometimes, whether you know it or not, you and I become functioning Christian atheists. We, we say on the outside that we believe God's real, but we function internally as though he's not. And that's what was happening then, and that's what happens even t- sometimes in our lives today. So the third thing of, of what unfaithfulness looks like in verse 2, it's the absence of obedience. So it says uh, there's, in verse 2, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. These are a list of Israel's sins. It's interesting, that's a partial list of the Ten Commandments. So what's being said is that, listen, the, the very founding document of what structured you as a people, the law, is the very thing that's being violated in your disobedience. One of the things that was a distinct identity of Israel was the law, and that was being violated in their relationship with God. So there was this lack or absence of obedience. And, I, and just like Israel, we're just like them, in that I, I'm pretty sure probably 99.9% of us don't wake up one morning, morning and say, I'm going to rebel against God today. I don't think most of us do that. Some of us do, but the majority of us, we get up and we have probably what we consider good intentions for our day. But something happens over time where what used to be something that we wouldn't do, now we begin to compromise over time. And we start to embrace behavior that maybe is something that kind of reckons back to our past, and we think about what we used to do, and we start making compromises, and we start sliding back into old habits and old patterns, and we start disobeying God. And again, it's not this this kind of thing where where it's like, okay, I'm going to make a commitment to do this, but it just happens. And then there's that moment when you and I wake up and we look at our lives and think, how in the world did I get here? I've sat down with so many, particularly in the area of adultery. I've sat down with people who have violated their covenant with their spouse, and that's one of the things that comes out of their mouth. I would have never done this in a million years. I don't know how I got to this place. This is not supposed to happen to me. But it didn't happen overnight. It happened one decision at a time, one compromise at a time, until it led to this place where now you're living in disobedience. That's what happens in our lives. And then there's there's a fourth element of unfaithfulness, what it looks like, and that's the absence of humanity. So it says in the last part of verse 2, they break all bounds bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. What What's the author talking about? Well, What had happened to Israel is because of their disconnect with God, they had lost contact with what it means to be human. Which means they didn't have the capacity to feel the brokenness around them or to react to the violence that happens around them or to them. Because what's actually being described is bloodshed follows bloodshed, which literally means like blood touching blood. And what was happening is that there's so much violence going on around them that that one act of violence seemed to happen so quickly after the other as as though they were overlapping and touching. Does that sound vaguely familiar to the culture we live in today? When was the last time you sat down on the news and didn't find out there's another mass shooting somewhere, or there was another another terrorist bombing somewhere, or there was another murder somewhere, or there was another rape? Every single day you turn on the news, I guarantee you're going to find at least one or five of those things. And it's interesting in, in the 24-hour news cycle of our culture. One pops up, and before you know it, you forget it because another one pops up. But what happens is we have to be really careful of the culture that we live in. When we become unfaithful to God, we lose touch with our humanity, what it means to be human, which is what God created us, is to feel the brokenness and, and the struggles of other people. When we disconnect from God, we disconnect from that reality. And then what happens is we don't react to the pain of people anymore. In fact this is happening and whether we know it or not. So it happens this way. I've seen this happen. So in our world we've obviously seen in the number last number of years more mass shootings. More mass shootings in our country, more mass shootings in other parts of the world, more terrorist attacks, more bombs, all these kind of things. But you know it's interesting that we have a capacity in our inhumanity to only embrace certain points of suffering for people but somehow marginalize others. Let me explain. So this is not to downplay any of the things that have happened in our country, or particularly in Europe. But when, when things happen in France, people react in the United States. When things happen in Orlando, people react in the United States. But while things are unfolding with mass shootings or a madman taking a truck and running people over and somebody walking into a club and shooting people to death, I mean, these horrific things. All of that happening in the United States and in Europe, and all the while, every single day, almost. Something similar is happening in the Middle East. But it doesn't stay in the news for very long. Did you know in the same, in, in the middle of all the news cycle of Orlando and then France this last round, did you know that there was a bombing in Baghdad that killed over 230 people? And that got 30 seconds on the evening news. 30 seconds. seconds. But everything about Orlando and about France was all over Facebook, all over the news. I mean, an hour-long news program was 45 minutes of what happened there and 30 seconds of what happened to children and women and parents in Baghdad. Why is that? Because in our inhumanity, we have categorized what we think is important. What hits closer to home is what we feel. And when somebody who looks like us suffers, we feel that. But when somebody who's on the other side of the world that we consider the enemy suffers, We don't even think twice about it. See, that's what happens in in, in this disconnect from God. Why is the world a violent place? Because people don't know God. The answer to violence is not more jails or more laws. The answer to violence is to know God personally because he transforms a human soul. So this is what was going on in Israel. This is what happens in us today. And so that's the bad news, but there's good news. That even though we find ourselves in a condition or a state of unfaithfulness, God is faithful. And this is the scandalous part of God's love. So go ahead and flip over to Hosea chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 7 through 9. Because in this passage, you're, it's amazing. You find the heart of God revealed. It's not the heart that you think it fits there. The one that wants to pour out his wrath on people. But it's the true heart of God for his people. So God's scandalous love desires to do a number of things that are highlighted in these verses. So Hosea 11, verses uh, 7 through 9. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not rise them up at all, or raise them up at all. And then verse 8, a definite change. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah, and how can I treat you like Zeboim, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. How how come nobody ever quotes those passages in the media and says, wow, God is compassionate and loving and warm and tender? Because that's the true nature of God. God. That's the heart of God for people. That's the heart of God for us. That's the heart of God for you, whether you know it or not. And there's three things that I want to highlight that this demonstrates of what, what's being said here in Isaiah chapter 11 about God's heart and his nature and what his scandalous love desires to do in our lives. The first one is this in verse 8. His desire is to never, ever, ever, ever give up on his people. Never. But you and I have a, a different interpretation of that. But what does it say? He said, how can I give you up? It's like this switch. Yeah, my, my anger burns against them, but, but how can I give them up? How in the world can I hand them over? How can I do that? Can I, and he mentions two cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. How can I make them like that? And he's saying, I can't do that. They're my people. I love them too deeply. I'm not going to give up on them, even though they've already given up on me. He never gives up. That, that's the reality. There isn't a place that you're going to find God in human history ever giving up on humanity. Even in the flood, God didn't give up on humanity. There was a remnant that he, he sustained so that humanity could go on. God will always continue to pursue people. He will never give up on us. And for some of us today, you need to hear that because you've already long ago given up on yourself. Or you've experienced at the hands of somebody else them giving up on you, which makes you double think twice about the way God looks at you. So you've just quit because you, don't, you think, I can't go forward because there's no way, and I've heard this so many times, there's no way that God could love somebody like me. And then people. I've heard people add this on, if God really knew me, as though God doesn't know you. He does, and yet his love is steadfast. He continues to pursue. He continues to love. He continues to extend his compassion to us. That is scandalous. We are the adulterer. We're the violator. And he keeps pursuing, keeps pursuing, and does not give up on us. There's a there's a couple of high school basketball games that are particularly memorable to me. And one of them was one of the best and one of the worst games of my high school career. And I'll tell you why. The reason it was the worst, a couple of reasons, one of them is that we lost. But the second reason was that it was the league championship and, and uh, I had become one of the better shooters on the team. And so most of the plays that we ran were gonna come to me. I, they were looking for me to get a shot. And so... Which obviously feels really good that your coach has that confidence in you and that your team has that confidence that you get, you're getting the ball a lot and so so we went into this game and, and so we're in the first quarter, and so sure enough, the first four or five plays of the game come to my side, they're running it to me, I get the ball, I have an open look, I shoot it, and don't come anywhere close to making it so that goes like four or five times, and so you know when you're when you're wanting to build confidence in a game missing four or five shots to start off the game is not good unless you're like kobe bryant or you know lebron james that they can shoot a million times in a game because they they get paid the big bucks but so you're trying to build confidence and like okay this is not starting out well and so i remember thinking okay obviously i don't have the hot hand i'm thinking the coach is going to start running plays to other guys on the floor and he doesn't he keeps coming to me so the first quarter i think i'm like oh for ten and I'm thinking, okay, now it's to the point of embarrassment for me. It's like, okay, I, I literally can't make a basket. So why is the coach going to continue to run a play to me when he knows I can't make it? So we get through the second quarter. I think I made like one shot. I think at the end of the game, I think I remember it was like 7 for 22. It's like 30%, which is not, not good. It wasn't good for me shooting. Some people are like, that's good. No, it's not. 50% is what you're shooting for, if not better. And I was way below that. So we got all the way into the third and the fourth quarter, and I could not believe this. I cannot make a a basket, and my coach keeps running the ball to me. And I remember I got to the end of the game, and I I almost, if I could have, but it would have been more embarrassing, I was going to walk over to the coach and say, can you please put me on the bench? Can you please just take me out of my misery and put me to rest so that I don't have to get the ball anymore? There are two high school games that I cried after. That was one of them, and the other one was my last uh, game as a senior. And I went home, and I remember I, I, I went into my bedroom, and I started crying because I felt like an absolute failure. And then on top of that, I kept thinking, my coach must be a really bad coach, or he must be crazy to think he should keep running the ball to me. He wasn't crazy. He knew exactly what he was doing. Because he knew that if I continued to shoot the ball, he knew that he had co- I, I would finally realize he had confidence in me that eventually I'm going to start making more than I missed. And I did in other games. But I think in our, in our, in our lifetime, how many times do you do something and it triggers something in your mind to think, oh, okay, that's it, that's it. That's the last time that's gonna happen in my life because I know now God's really mad. He's really upset at me and there's no way he's gonna forgive that. There's no way he's gonna give me another opportunity. And so we live in that tension. But God's love described for us in the book of Hosea says he will never, ever, ever give up on us. Even when other people give up, he will not quit. He will continue to pursue because he loves us. And then the second second truth of God's scandalous love and what he desires to do in our lives is that his love desires to be driven by compassion for his people, not driven by anger or wrath. He says in verse 8, My heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. When was the last time you thought of God and thought of warm and tender? Especially when we're talking about the Old Testament. No, usually those aren't words that we think of describing God. That's the way God describes his compassion for his people which is very hard for some of us to embrace, that we have a God who has that much love and compassion that he would describe himself Himself as warm and tender. Now, I know already, because I've talked to people, there are people probably in this room right now that you didn't grow up in a very warm and tender household. You grew up in the opposite. And, and you grew up in an environment where where there were a lot of rules, it was really strict, and so you had to learn how to thrive in an environment where you weren't going to get a whole lot of hugs and kisses and a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings from your parents because you just had to buck up and grow up. The problem with that is that you will many times take that upbringing and you apply it to God. And that you think that God treats you that way. That God doesn't have compassion towards you. You just have to work harder. And so when you hear that God is loving and compassionate and he's warm and tender, you're like, no, 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 no. I like the hard and the mean and the rough God because that's what I'm used to. When God comes along and says, no, no, no. That's not who I am. That's not who I want you to understand me to be. See, because God is so faithful and so compassionate, that's what he wants to do. He wants to demonstrate his compassion, even though we are unfaithful, and even though we are disconnected from him, and even though, again, we're the adulterer, what does he do? He continues to bring his compassion and warm and tenderness to our lives. So one of the things that impressed me about a journey that we walked through as a family was um, my sister, who I've asked permission many times if I can tell her story, and so she's granted me that. Uh, my sister, Julie, who's closest in age to me, she's just a few years older than I. Um, when uh, we were, uh, Kim and I were dating, and she was dating a guy that I introduced her to. Uh, they ended up getting engaged, and, and then they set a date, and were like, no, I thought he was a good friend of mine, but he's not going to make a good brother-in-law. I don't want you to marry him. And so everyone was kind of telling her, don't marry this guy, don't marry this guy, and she ends up marrying this guy. So about seven years into the marriage, six or seven years, she's pregnant with her first child, and he has an affair. This wasn't like any kind of a mistake. It happened one time. This was calculated with somebody in his, in his office at work. And so when it came out, I remember I'm sitting in Ventura, in our apartment. I remember my sister called me, and she starts telling me, and she's in tears, and she's telling me what's happened to her. And I remember there were no tears for me. There was just looking for a baseball bat and finding the fastest ride to Fresno, a flight to Fresno, to kill this guy. I was so mad because I felt partly responsible because I had introduced them. And so she, she kind of, we processed through that day and just talked through, and so I got off the phone and I was furious, and Kim and I talked about it, and I was mad, and I was hurt, and I was upset. I felt violated too because he was one of my friends, and so as we're processing through this, a few days later she gets on the phone, we're talking again, I said, so now now that the dust has settled just a little bit and you're trying to navigate, I said, what are you going to do? I said, are you going to get a divorce? Or I mean, obviously God's not, not wanting you to get a divorce, although there's provision for that. I said, what, what are you going to do? And this one just blew me away. She said, I love him. And I'm thinking, I don't. <laughs> she goes, but I, I just, I, I still love him. And even though I know he's done this horrible thing, I, I, I still love him and I want this marriage to work. And, and so she said, I, I've asked him to make a commitment that he will walk through an extended period of counseling with me. And at the end of that, which was like an eight to 10 month period, then he can make his final decision if he wants to remain with me or if he wants to leave. I'm thinking, wow, you have a whole lot more compassion than I do. And so she got him to commit to that. And I watched through this, this eight to 10 months, almost a year process, watched my sister put up with a guy that I had no patience with, put up with somebody who didn't deserve warmth and tenderness and compassion because she loved him. And sadly, at the end of that period, he decided to say to her, I don't love you. And he walked away. He violated and he, he took the covenant that they made and he's the one that divorced her and he walked away. And I remember thinking, I watched my, my sister, who was a couple years older, but I watched my sister deepen in her walk with Jesus more than any other season of her life. Because she began to reflect more of what God's love is for people than I'd ever seen in my life with her patience with somebody who didn't deserve it. See, we're the adulterer. God is the faithful party. And his desire is not divorce. His desire is Love, compassion, coming in the form of warmth and tenderness towards His people, even when we violate our covenant with Him. Even when we aren't faithful, He is always faithful to us. And then, this final point of God's scandalous love and what it desires for us is that in verse 9, it desires to withhold wrath and anger toward His people. God does not desire to pour out His wrath on people. He doesn't. And it says in verse nine, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. That sounds opposite from what we think about God. God doesn't want to come in wrath. God doesn't want to bring judgment on people. God That doesn't bring God pleasure. But the reality is, is because God is just. The justice of God is fair, and that therefore it requires when there is a violation, when there is sin, there has to be some accommodation, there's some absorption, some payment for that sin in order for there to be restored relationship. That's just. That's why God's wrath has to be poured out in some way and in some form in order for relationship with that violator to be restored. So when God makes this this pronouncement in the old testament that i will not come in wrath wrath in terms of the way he approaches his people the only way he can make that statement is is looking forward to the new testament because it's when jesus came and gave his life for us and died on the cross to take on the judgment and the wrath of god that god can say listen i don't come in wrath to my people i come with compassion and love Why? Because Jesus took on our sin and absorbed that on our behalf so that the righteousness of Jesus can be ours. And the wrath of God is what Jesus owned on our behalf. And this is pretty significant because, again, I think some of us, we have this fear with God. We're waiting for the other shoe to drop, we're waiting for that judgment to come, but not realizing that that's not what God's desire is for his people. Although, if we walk away from Him, that's what awaits us. But He's given us a covering; He's given us something that uh, that that protects us from that judgment, and that is a relationship with Jesus, and that is Jesus' death and resurrection. That's Jesus paying the penalty for us. Now, I want to I want to close with this. I want to take some time. We're going to head towards communion in just in a few moments. In fact, I'll ask the worship team if they would come and join me and, and get preparation for that. But I want us just to talk a little bit about this concept of God's wrath and how that works. So Jesus, very important, Jesus took on the sin of all of mankind for all time on the cross to pay a price for us so that we could be restored back to God in relationship. And this is significant because one of the things that we have a tendency to either dismiss or forget about is the element of God's wrath. So let me, let me put it in this context. As I was reflecting and studying this last week and looking at this passage and then looking at the wrath of God, there's a story that unfolds in the Gospels that probably most of us are familiar with. So Jesus has taken his disciples just literally not two, probably moments before, a day before he's about to go to the cross and he's taken them to the Garden of Gethsemane and they've, they've gone there to pray and Jesus knows what's coming. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to go on trial. He knows he's going to die. So they get into the garden, and it actually records in the Gospels that Jesus separated himself from his disciples, and he fell to his knees, and he began to pray. He was praying to the Father. In fact, his prayer was so intense that he actually started to, to sweat blood that was actually coming out of his pores. That's the intensity and the level that he was calling out to the Father in. And if you, you know the story, Jesus is engaging the Father, and he's, and he's praying, and he's asking, and he makes this statement this very powerful statement. He's saying, listen, if there's any other way to accomplish your purpose, then let's take that option. That's what he was saying. Can we, I know what's coming in the days ahead. I know what's going to happen. If there's any other way, let's do that. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. Now when we hear that story, in fact, in preparation for a community, we have a default that we go to and that's this. What we think Jesus was praying about is we think Jesus was praying about crucifixion. That Jesus was saying, listen, I know that I'm going, in moment, just a few moments, I'm going to be arrested, and in being arrested, I'm going to be put on trial, that I'm going to be falsely accused, that I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to suffer physically the greatest physical suffering that a human being could experience in the form of execution, which is crucifixion. And that's what we think that Jesus was praying about, but that's not what he was praying about. In fact, just think about this for a moment. Do we really think that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, was afraid of crucifixion? yeah, it's a bad thing. But you know, throughout human history, there have been people who following Jesus have suffered more physically than even Jesus did, even though crucifixion is horrific. Then what was Jesus praying about? Jesus made another statement in his prayer to the Father. He said this statement. He said, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. What was the cup that Jesus was referring to? Was it the cup of crucifixion? No, it was the cup of God's wrath. Throughout the scriptures, you will see the wrath of God referred to in a cup form. That's a symbol of God's wrath. And Jesus knew that in the moment that he went to the cross, although crucifixion was horrific, he knew what was even more horrific was that in that moment, he would be taking on all the wrath and fury of God's justice poured out on him for our sin in one moment, for all the sin of all humanity. That's why it even records in the scriptures that the Father actually had to turn his face away. From Jesus. Not because crucifixion was so horrific, but because the sin of mankind was so horrific. But Jesus willingly said, I will take all of that on myself so that God can say to his people, I don't come in wrath. I come in compassion and love and forgiveness because Jesus took your sin on himself so that we could be in relationship. In a few moments, I'm gonna ask you just close your eyes right now. In a few moments, we're gonna we're gonna dismiss to the stations around the auditorium. So you are welcome to to go and to receive the elements. So you're gonna receive the bread, which is a symbol of Jesus body broken, and then the cup, which is his blood that is shed for us. But I, I want us to do a couple of things. One of those things is to understand the, the weight of our own sin. And what these elements represent to us A reflection back A remembering back To the moment in time Where all of sin was paid for And I want you just right now And I know It's its its impossible to do this completely But just for a moment And, and this is not to make us feel guilty Or weigh us down But I just, just to capture How good God is to us So just right now Just for a moment Think about Over your lifetime Every point of failure That you've experienced Now I know we can't remember them all But every time when you know that you you made a decision that was less than what God had for you, every time when you treated somebody in a way that was wrong, any time that you were less than honest, any time that you stole something, any time that you violated somebody else, any time that you thought thoughts that were impure or wrong, all of those moments in your life all come to bear. And I want you just for a moment just to think, if you were able to even capture all of those in one moment of memory, What I want you to do is take that and multiply that by billions and billions and billions and billions and billions. And maybe with that, we capture a glimpse of the weight of the sin of all of us. That Jesus took on his shoulders and on his life and took on the judgment that it was ours that we had earned on himself. One writer put it this way, Jesus took the cup of the wrath of God and he drank every last drop. And then he took that cup and he turned it upside down and he put it down and he said, "It is finished. Your sin is finished because God has made a way through Jesus. To be in relationship with Him, even though we are unfaithful, He is still faithful to us. The second thing I want you to do as we receive communion together is maybe this is a time where God has now brought to your mind some of your own brokenness and sin and failure, some of your own unfaithfulness as you kind of took those things as a checklist or self assessment, and you're thinking, yeah, you know, I've become immune to the pain of people around me, I've lost sight of what it means to be human maybe i know that i've my love has been hot and cold and I, I want it to be consistent or maybe i've really disconnected myself from god and don't feel like i know him any longer whatever it might be that god is asking you to confess that today to say yeah that's that's what i'm dealing with that's the sin that i need to put upon the, the shoulders of jesus to take from me to forgive me so that i might be able to experience a relationship with god of tenderness compassion So you confess those things, and then you participate in the the, the blood and the body of Jesus that brings forgiveness to you as you confess those things. So Jesus, in these next few moments, I pray that as we just take a glimpse into your love and how scandalous it is that you being faithful would love people being unfaithful but you would be consistent today to even come and to meet us right where we're at, to the place of our sin and our brokenness, to the place, Lord, where we've lost connection with you. Reestablish, reunite, and reconcile us back today through your death and your gift of life to us. We thank you, Jesus.